Good morning. You all sound kind of grouchy. Good morning. Thank you. That's better. Thank you. Um, sorry about that. I just I make my kids do the same thing. So, um, Pastor Michael gave us some wonderful exposition the last few weeks, didn't he? So uh, he, he was again very apologetic that he can't be here this morning uh, due to a prior commitment he made to go to a conference in New Jersey where he's going to be teaching and uh, preaching there. Um, but rest assured, he will be be with us again next week. Um, I believe Sandra sent out an email with the information so that if you want to watch the sessions where he is preaching and teaching, you're able to do that. And uh, it happens to also be on the front page of our website if you want to uh, look at that. So you should be able to find those things there. Um, I'm going to take the opportunity now to lay out a little bit of a, a roadmap about what to expect for preaching in Pastor Michael's inaugural season here. When he returns next week, he's going to begin a four-part series with the theme being the name of our church. Uh, There are four words in Sovereign Grace Bible Church. Each one has rich theological implications. And so to begin his ministry here with us, he wants to impart to us what it is exactly that the name of our church means. Following that, we will likely begin a verse-by-verse series in a Bible book like we are used to. Just to be upfront with you, we do not at this time plan to return to our series in Mark. The end of chapter 12 seemed like a sufficient place to put a bookmark while Michael begins his season of ministry at our church. We may pick it up back again for a Sunday school class or an evening service if we reinstitute those uh, at some point, but for now we're going to have Pastor Michael move forward in a new direction as the elders determine what is going to be the most appropriate use of the pulpit and what the spiritual needs are of the congregation. Um, as I volunteered to do this week's sermon in Pastor Michael's absence, I was kind of stuck with what to preach on, and so he suggested that I take up the text in Second Corinthians 11 that you saw on the screen earlier discussing Paul's jealousy for the Corinthian church. So let's turn there to 2 Corinthians 11, and we'll read our text. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11 starting with verse 1, the word of the Lord. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, as we hear these words, as we see what was concerning Paul, as we still understand this concept of your jealousy for your own glory, Lord, impart to us the weightiness of your glory. 
Teach us from your word what is our responsibility. And help us, Lord, to love you all the more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who take notes, I'm hoping today to discuss three things. First, we're going to try and understand just briefly a doctrine of apostasy, those who fall away from the faith. We're also going to look at Christian perseverance. We might even refer to this as a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. Finally, we're briefly going to try to understand how God's jealousy for us preserves true believers and true churches and gives us a responsibility to carefully guard the purity of our doctrine and actively participate in our sanctification by waging war against sin. And because I'm not very good at outlining a sermon, you probably won't be able to tell when I'm changing topics. So I'm sorry in advance. And I was going to take this part out, but Ilona told me to leave it in. If you want that to get better, keep helping me with my seminary. In verse 1 of our text, which some of you might remember from our study about a year and a half ago, Paul says, bear with me in a little foolishness. I want to explain this. What he's not saying is that the content of his exhortation is foolish or inconsequential or that we shouldn't listen to it. Rather, he is drawing your attention to some of the sarcastic language that he's going to use later when he describes a super apostle in verse 5. Do you remember the defense that he's making of his ministry here? False teachers had infiltrated the church at Corinth and began to tear down the true gospel teachings of Paul. They made fun of his weakness, his frailty, his lack of lofty speech and skill and articulation. They said, if he's worth anything, he'd look better, he'd sound better, He'd be more interesting, and he'd be able to charge a high price, just like we do. They elevate themselves above Paul because they're enemies of the gospel, concerned about their own gain. And it's necessary for them to tear down the true messenger of God so they can deceive the Corinthian church and further perpetuate their own advancement. So Paul uses a little holy sarcasm. In verse 5, he calls these false teachers super apostles. Not because they actually are, but because the idea of a super apostle is ludicrous on its face. That's the foolishness that he's referencing here. What is an apostle anyway? Do you remember? It's one called by God to do the work of the ministry. There were three specific qualifications. One, to have been a witness of the resurrected Christ. Two, that's an eyewitness. Two, to have been explicitly chosen by God to be an apostle. And three, to have the ability to perform signs and wonders. The idea of a super apostle necessitates that there's an even higher calling than that, which is absurd. The idea of a super apostle is utterly absurd. That's why Paul says it. That's the foolishness that he is engaging in. I don't want us to get hung up on the language of verse 1, so I wanted to explain that. The thrust of our message today is in verses 2 and 3. We'll read verse 2 again. 
For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul says he feels a divine jealousy. Literally in the Greek, he says a jealousy that is of God, or a jealousy that is from God. Paul is experiencing God's holy jealousy, which we just spent the last two weeks describing. The Greek word in verse 2 is zelo. It's the same word used in John 2.17 as Jesus is scourging the temple from the corruption of the money changers. And the disciples recall Psalm 69.9 as a prophecy about the Christ where it says, Zeal for your house will consume me. In Pastor Michael's study, he cited the Hebrew word kana quite often. It's translated as jealous in Exodus and in other places. Similar conjugations of the word translate as zealous. We got a good understanding of that word before, didn't we? We understand that in the context of God expressing it, it is a righteous and holy desire to protect what belongs to the one who is jealous. To claim what is mine. To not have what is rightly mine taken away or put to wrong use or defiled. In contrast to human jealousy, which is often just a sinful negative reaction to wishing that we had something that we didn't. A man can be rightly jealous if his wife is threatened. But so often, the case of human jealousy involves this sort of irrational, emotional reaction to circumstances that simply didn't please us, things that we have no rights over. It's more like sinful envy that gives birth to an uncontrolled rage. But we understand God is never sinfully envious and he's never out of control. No, he is righteously zealous to defend and protect what belongs to him, what is owed to him, what he is due, what his nature demands, his own glory. We've discussed how right it is that God receive glory. So we understand from this Hebrew word, kana, that God is zealous for his own glory. He is jealous for his own name's sake that he would receive what is due to him. But wait a minute. The Psalms and God's description of himself as jealous in Exodus and the rest of the Old Testament, those are all written in Hebrew. Second Corinthians is written in Greek, not Hebrew. Paul is using the Greek word zelo. We translate it as, as zealous, or in this verse in 2 Corinthians 11, jealous, but it comes from the root word zeo. Zeo, that means to heat or to burn. The Greek word for the jealousy of God, which is translated from the Hebrew version of the word God uses to describe himself, has its root in burning. In fact, when you conjugate zelos with the Greek word for fire, which is pyro, like in Hebrews 10.27, it is translated as the fury of fire. Let's read that passage together. We're going to turn together to Hebrews 10. We read the preliminary part of this earlier to open the service.
Hebrews 10. We're going to start with verse 19. This section, starting with verse 19, is instruction to those who have received the truth. The author is talking to Jewish believers. He begins with positive admonition and encouragement to the believers, giving them instructions on what to do now that they have no division between them and God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Amen. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Praise God. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then starting in verse 26, he gives a very strong warning against apostasy. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, I didn't, I didn't really want to get into a, a deep exploration of a doctrine of apostasy here, because frankly, it's a difficult topic. But I think we need to explore it somewhat, because it's really going to inform our understanding of our text in 2 Corinthians. Please understand that the writer here in this second paragraph in Hebrews 10 is talking about a person who goes on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And for that person, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury, zelos, of fire, pyros, that will consume the adversaries. Well, this makes it sound like we can lose our salvation, doesn't it? I know somebody here is thinking that. And some people who are wrong will interpret this verse that way. It doesn't mean that. Jesus promises not to lose any of those that belong to him. In fact, those who do belong to him are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Vodi Bauckham, who I recommend to you, explained this so clearly. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that we belong to God. 
The concept being just like a real estate transaction. When you go to buy a property, you give earnest money. That's your guarantee that you will show up on closing day and complete your end of the transaction. God gives the Holy Spirit as the guarantee that he's going to show up on closing day. And if he actually does not show up on closing day and does not redeem and perfect those who he has given that guarantee and does not close the deal by delivering their inheritance, he would lose the Holy Spirit and thus cease to be God. Do you see what a good guarantee it is? If you are his, you are so secure. So what about these ones who are expecting judgment? The ones who are told to depart from him are ones that never knew him. They might have known of him, might even have appeared to fit with the family of God, but he never knew them. They weren't his. They had not received new hearts because you see a contrite heart God does not despise. That's Psalm 51, 17. And those whom he redeems truly are given that heart of contrition. A heart that still struggles with sin, yes. But one that continually repents before God. One who mourns their sin and that their sin is offensive to the God that deserves all glory and the God that loves them and has died to redeem them. But someone who receives some knowledge of God, one who is given for a time to dwell among God's people and receive the blessings of the visible church, and then deliberately sets his heart to sin against God, God calls him an adversary. God does not redeem his enemies to himself and call them his adopted sons and daughters only then to let them become his enemies again. And so don't take this as a warning that your sins and failures while you're a believer threaten you to lose your salvation. It doesn't mean that. Don't think that your dead flesh clinging to you and you not being rid of it no matter how hard you strive means that your salvation is in jeopardy. It doesn't mean that. We are promised that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. But we also understand that the work will not be complete until that day comes. The commentary in the Geneva Study Bible sums this up nicely in one thought, and I'll paraphrase, I'll paraphrase slightly to make it easier. For it is one matter to sin through the frailty of man's nature and another thing, to proclaim war on God as an enemy. There are times when God's people, even his redeemed people, fall into sin like this and grieve him. Have they lost their salvation? Does that mean that he never knew them? It's what we said earlier. God's people live lives of repentance. Repentance involves not only turning away from sin, putting off the old, but also putting on the new, putting on holiness, embracing sanctification, desiring Christ-likeness, and making war with your sin to that end. God's people, both as individuals and as churches, can fall into gross error. 
But if they're true believers and true churches, they will not stay there. They will repent and return to the truth of the simple gospel and love their covenant with God and love the Savior that they knew at the first and they will make war with their sin. I want to show you an example of this. We read Exodus 32 for our scripture reading this morning. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll recap the story for you. To get all the history, we'd actually have to go all the way back to Exodus 1. Because I didn't want the sermon to be two hours, we're, gonna, we're, not, we're not going to do that. We don't have time for that today. So I'll just, I'll just briefly recap for you the context of this chapter we read. The children of Israel are at Mount Sinai. You know Moses had already gone up and down on the mountain five or six times before this part of the story that we've gotten to. And he has received word from God, and he brought that word back to the people. They've seen lightning and smoke. The elders and Aaron and his sons have gone up with Moses, and they experienced fellowship with God firsthand. The people have been camped here for weeks or months, and they've seen all of this take place firsthand. During this time, they've entered into covenant with God and they've promised that they would love, follow, and obey Him. This is on the heels of the whole nation seeing with their very eyes God performing all of His wonders in their rescue from Egypt. And then Moses makes one more trip up the mountain. And he's gone for longer than usual. Forty days and forty nights. He's up there. And this is while God is giving him the Ten Commandments and the stone tablets, and the law. So what happens? Forty days. They get bored. They're not content to wait upon word from the God that just rescued them out of slavery by miraculous natural disasters, plagues, parting the Red Sea, utterly destroying the pursuing Egyptian army, and going in front of them and hovering over them as a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. The God that they just promised to love and obey in covenant with Him. The God who has impressed upon them His holiness by warning them not to even come too close to the mountain lest they perish. The God who has sent His designated messenger, Moses, whom they are to follow, trust, and wait upon. They got bored. They very quickly lose their contentment. They don't want to wait. All it takes is six weeks before they're saying, you know, that guy Moses, he's been gone for a while. We don't really know what happened to him. Aaron, uh, Aaron, could you make us a God that we would like better than this one that makes us wait around so long? We'd like that better, please. Can you believe it? So they tell Aaron to make them an idol, and they worship it. And they sit down to eat and drink and they rise up to play. Do you know what that part means? That means, uh, well, the image of a, of a calf would have represented an Egyptian god or perhaps an association with another pagan god of bounty and fertility. Some of your study Bibles might tell you that this rising up to play or in other translations to revel was likely some kind of pagan fertility ritual. You can imagine what that, that might entail. Then you look in verse 25 and it says, Moses observed that they had broken loose. In other words, they had a total lack of restraint. That's what the Hebrew means there. What started as a little harmless, discontented boredom, harmless, 
progressed to an idolatrous feast and a fertility ritual that very quickly transformed into a no-holds-barred orgy. Abject, rebellious, sexual immorality of the ugliest kind among God's covenant people. Do you see how quickly and how far God's people can fall from their love of Him and their obedience to Him? Six weeks to go from covenant-keeping, reverent fear of the holy God and not even touching His mountain because He's so holy to worshiping a golden cow that they'd made with their hands and having an orgy out in the open. Beloved, this is our frame. And if I think it couldn't happen to me and you think it couldn't happen to you, be careful. Aaron led them into it. He'd just been up on the mountain with God. So what happens next? Moses calls the faithful Levites and they purge the camp with the sword and they kill 3,000 men. Does that sound like making war with sin to you? Then Moses grinds up the golden calf into dust, pours it into the water, and makes all the congregation drink it. And God sends a plague upon them because of their idolatry. This is the discipline of the Lord. All of these consequences are the discipline for their sin and they endure it we didn't read chapter 33 in our scripture reading but we're going to read part of it now to understand the rest of the story go back to exodus if you can exodus Starting with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. You see what happened here? God says, I'm going to give you what I promised. The nice land flowing with milk and honey, and I'll crush all your enemies and drive them out. But I'm not going with you. I can't go with you. How did the people respond? Read verse 4 again. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. What was disastrous? Was it that they had to wage war in their own camp and kill 3,000 of their men to purge the sin? Was it the plague that caused them to be sick? Was it drinking the bitter water? No, these weren't the disastrous thing. The disastrous thing was that God didn't want to be with them. So they mourned. What does it mean that they didn't wear their ornaments? 
It means their hearts were contrite. How can I put on my jewelry when I'm not right with God? How does what I look like on the outside matter in the least when God has told me my inside is ugly? And that he doesn't want it. He was still going to give them the promised land flowing with milk and honey. What's the big deal? A land of plenty, of wealth, fertility, a land with no enemies. They would become a great nation there. But he said, I'm not going with you. Do you see how by the fear of losing their greatest blessing, the blessing of God's presence, of him being their God, and them being his people, the fear of losing that, he turned their hearts toward him again. Calvin helps us understand this in, in his commentary on verse 4. Quote, God promised the Israelites what might attract them for a little season. He denied them what they should have alone desired, that he would be their God. The evil tidings affected them with sorrow, for they felt that men cannot be happy unless God be propitious. Nay, that nothing can be more wretched than to be alienated from him. It's good for me to draw near to God, Psalm 73, 28, says David. And elsewhere, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, Psalm 33, 12, and Psalm 144, 15. Again, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. My lot is fallen in pleasant places, Psalm 16, 5. This, therefore, is the climax of all miseries to have God against us whilst we are fed by his bounty. And consequently, the Israelites began to show some wisdom when awakening from their lethargy, they counted all other things as naught, unless God should pursue them with his paternal favor. End quote. This is the heart of God's redeemed people. By his mercy and his word, he will always turn them back to himself. He has a divine jealousy for those that belong to him because they are his betrothed, his beloved bride, the ones he wants to be with for all eternity. So what's Paul afraid of? Back in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy, zelo. Remember, that is the jealousy that's from God or God's jealousy. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Did you notice the word betrothed? It means to espouse, to join two things together in your strong's concordance. If you have one, it shows that this is also a carpentry term. To fit two beams together, to build a house. Paul, in preaching the gospel to the Corinthians, and subsequently having them believe that gospel, is presenting the Corinthian believers to Christ as a bride who is joined to him. Christ is the one husband. Paul wants the Lord Jesus to have a pure, undefiled, and loyal bride. He uses the picture of marriage again. The picture that God uses often to show his relationship with his people so that we can understand. He deserves for his beloved bride to love him and him alone. To be joined together with him and not with anything else or anyone else. That's what he means when he says, one husband. 
Just as in a wedding vow, we forsake all others to be loyal to Him. Is there something threatening that loyalty? Something that would lead them astray and they would be joined to us and they would be joined to something else instead? We're going to go back and look at 2 Corinthians again. So go back to chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. The Corinthians were being deceived by false teachers to embrace false gospels and false Christs. To believe a false gospel is to take a different set of wedding vows, isn't it? It's to join yourself under different terms. To join yourself to a false Christ is to marry someone other than the real one. What do I mean? Think about when you take your wedding vow. Your wedding day. You take a vow to love someone exactly for who they are. When a pastor officiates a wedding ceremony, uh, let me ask the married women in the room. I got one right there who knows exactly what I'm talking about. What did your pastor ask you? Does he ask you, would you like to marry the person that this man might become? No. Does he ask you, would you like to marry your set of expectations for this man? No. And that would be disappointing, wouldn't it? He says, do you take this man, the one standing right in front of you, just as he is? And what do you say? Yes, I will. But what were the Corinthians doing? They were being deceived by false teachers to embrace false gospels and false Christs. What is a false gospel? I'm going to tell you it doesn't really matter what's false about it if it's not the true gospel. Or if it's not the whole gospel, it's false. So many preachers and churches out there will share a false gospel that says a hundred things that are true and one thing that's not true. That's a false gospel. Or they'll just leave out the part about sin because the idea that we're sinful is offensive. Folks, it's not good news without the bad news. You don't need to spend a lot of time looking out for false gospels and studying them. That's not worth your time. Be like the Treasury Department employees who can identify counterfeit money. You know why they're so good at it? Not because they study the fakes, but because they study what? The real thing. That's right. What's a false Christ? I'm not talking about believing in a different deity here. It's not like the Corinthians were inviting the worship of Athena into their Christianity or something like that. No, a false Christ is like a false gospel. It's a Jesus that we change just a little bit to make him more to our liking. Nowadays, you hear people say things like this all the time. Jesus is just, he's just loving and kind, and all he wants for us is to be loving and kind to each other. He never judged anyone. We shouldn't judge either. 
Or, or how about this one? You hear this all the time. Jesus never spoke directly about homosexuality, so we shouldn't say that that's sinful. You all know that's stupid, right? The red letters are not the only words of Jesus. He wrote the whole book. He is the whole book. The be nice Jesus is a false Jesus. Do you know next time he comes, it says a warrior judge? with a flaming sword to smite his enemies and strike down all who oppose him? Tremble. A Jesus of your own making that suits your own liking, that isn't the Jesus of the Holy Scripture. It is a false Christ. So maybe that's not what it was. Maybe it was something else. But whatever it was, the Corinthians were embracing it. Read verse 3 again. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Is it entirely their fault? They're being deceived, right? Paul compares their deception to the deception of Eve. Let's turn to Genesis 3. We'll start with verse 1, all the way back to the beginning. The enemy uses the same things over and over. Genesis 3, starting with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now pay close attention here. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She heard what the serpent said, and then she looked at the fruit. It looked good to her. It looked better to her than not eating it even though God had told her not to. God had told Eve and Adam what was best for them, and she thought little of it because she thought this idea that contradicted God's word was better. She liked it better. The deceiver plays a role, but the person being deceived has the moral agency for their sin. You know why? Instead of hearing something that was not true and rejecting it, because she loves the truth and the God that had given her the truth. She heard something that was not true and decided that she liked that version of reality better. So she ate. She was willing to be deceived. And so she sinned. Just as Eve, the Corinthians accepted the deceit willingly at the end of verse 4, because they'd heard about Gospels and Christs that suited their liking better. They weren't content with the God 
that had revealed himself and the simple truth of his covenant. Paul accuses them at the end of verse 4, you put up with it willingly enough. The Corinthians are willing to be deceived. They are willing, after taking wedding vows and being betrothed to a perfect husband, to accept different vows and look for a husband that is more to their liking. And so the purity, fidelity, loyalty of Jesus' bride is threatened. And just as an unfaithful wife brings reproach upon herself and is not able to be what God intended for her husband, an unfaithful church does not bring glory to Christ. And God is very jealous for His glory. Do you see how God's zeal is motivated against an unfaithful church? There's a real example of this happening in the world right now. Well, you could probably turn on the news and see 50 of them in the first half an hour. But let me give you one that, that's been highlighted. The Bishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop of the Church of England, known worldwide as the Anglican Church, and in the United States as the Episcopalian Church, recently made a change to allow Anglican clergy to perform and bless homosexual marriage ceremonies, so-called marriage ceremonies. We know that the God of the Bible... Our King Jesus has declared this to be anathema, abomination. And so that's a tragedy, isn't it? What has taken place with the Anglicans is a tragedy, not only because the Anglican tradition contributed many great theologians to history, and it's sad to see them in reproach, but it's a greater tragedy because Christ's bride is despising His Word they want a less offensive Jesus and a less offensive gospel. They want hippie, be nice to each other, Jesus, instead of the Jesus who commands obedience and is coming again with a flaming sword, maybe soon. So in February, the Anglican bishops of Africa gathered together and they had a conference and they agreed with one another to send a letter to Canterbury with a clear message. The archbishops of Uganda... Kenya, and Nigeria, representing over 35 million Anglican Christians, declared that Canterbury's unbiblical stance strips the Anglican Church of her legitimacy and that the Bishop of Canterbury is not fit to lead a church and maybe is not even a believer in Christ at all. Wow. Their message is summed up clearly in one sentence from their letter. We cannot walk with you unless you repent. And good for them. It's right that they should say so. Individuals in so-called churches that hold the serious error and endorse sin and never depart from it and love sin more than they love God in the revealed person of Jesus Christ and love a false gospel more than His revealed Word, though they say that they are joined to Him, they were never His bride to begin with. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Church discipline and the step of excommunication conveys the ideas here very practically. The church does not excommunicate someone because we don't like them anymore. 
or because they offended someone, or because there was a a minor theological disagreement, or because they sinned one time, none of us would be here. No, the step of excommunication happens when sin is brought to a member's attention by his beloved brother, and then by multiple brothers, and then the whole church, and that member refuses to repent. He says, the clear teaching of God's word is not enough for me. I wish to worship a Jesus that will accommodate my sin. Excommunicating someone from a church tells the members and the disciplined person that because of the pattern in that person's life that shows a lack of contrition and the refusal to make war with their sin and their apparent desire to worship a God who accommodates sin and an apathetic attitude toward being sanctified, not wishing to please the Lord and become more like Him, the church can no longer affirm that person's membership because their life does not evidence the new heart that they claim to have received. They refuse to make war with sin because they love their sin more than they love God. They would rather love a false Christ of their own making. Though for a time they may have appeared to walk with the church, their life shows evidence that they do not have new hearts, but still have hearts of stone. Church discipline is about restoration. That's the goal of every step along the way. Even the excommunication step Let me explain. A person with a new heart will eventually turn. No matter how far they fall, they eventually turn. Even pushing them out of the church is meant to take away the blessings and protection of God's covenant community from their life so that their true spiritual state is laid bare before them and they might experience the pain of God's messenger saying to them what the African bishops said, at Canterbury, and what God said to those Israelites in Exodus, we can't go with you anymore. That the pain of that message, of that removal, might activate a softened heart that wishes to return. And a contrite heart God does not despise. This, beloved, is how God's jealousy manifests. When a wife goes around town telling everyone she wishes she had a different husband, or telling everyone her husband's faults, the things she doesn't like about him, or telling everyone he's a liar, I don't believe what he says, and neither should you. Does she honor him? Is she faithful and loyal? When she gives herself away to other men, is she pure? And is her husband exalted? Or does her reproach reflect on him? God will not have a bride that brings him reproach. He is jealous for his glory. When he's jealous for you, he is protecting his own glory. He is ensuring that Jesus will be exalted, and he is worthy to be exalted. And so, no matter how far you fall away, if you're his, you will repent. The Christian life is a life of repentance because your God is jealous for you. I got to the end of this study on Friday night, and I felt like I was missing something. I was afraid I was incomplete. And then he reminded me, why does he want us for a bride? Why does he want us for a bride? It's not because he's lonely. 
It's not because he isn't satisfied by an existence without us. God is complete in himself. Amen? But remember, all of it's done for his glory. And part of why he deserves that glory is because of his perfect love. God is love. He expresses it to us in showing the sacrificial nature of true love, of lowering oneself to lift another up. It's his priority. I think Pastor Dan from Branch of Hope taught us this a few months ago. What a wonderful sermon. God expresses his righteousness, his wrath, his judgment, his creativity, all of his attributes in one way or another, but he delights in expressing love. He loves to love you. He loves to show his love to you. Even the first and greatest commandment for us to be like him, we must love him. We love him because he first loved us. So church, live lives of repentance and a life of love for God. He loves you and he is jealous for you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, make us a people who love you. Make us a holy people, a people with contrite hearts, hearts of repentance. And Lord, we look forward to the day when our repentance is no longer needed because you have completed the work of perfection and we can see you face to face. We look forward to that day. But until then, Lord, draw us near. Keep us tender. We pray in Jesus' name.